0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star
1: of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Andrew Scheer, Conservative Party leader. You'll hear him on Justin Trudeau in Osaka and on Admiral Mark Norman. Speaking of the Admiral, David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto, will speak about whether or not we as taxpayers have the right to know what the amount may be, the settlement amount may be between the government and the Admiral. Spencer Fraser, the CEO of Federal Fleet Services on the supply ship Asterisk, which is the ship around which the Admiral Norman case revolved. find out about that ship and how they built it on time and on budget. And Professor Guy Harrison on Kawhi Leonard, will he stay or will he go? Professor Harrison is a Ph.D. who reports on sports and media. And Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger was harassed at his home at 7 o'clock on Friday morning. He'll tell us what happened. Stay with us. It was really not very encouraging to see the Prime Minister and the President of China sitting beside one another and not interacting. They didn't acknowledge each other when it all began, so the reports say. And then to see them back to back with Mr. Trudeau reaching across to speak to the President of Brazil, which was not at all in any way aligned with the thinking of, uh, of the Liberal Party of Canada. Anyway, so we're we're hearing now that uh, there were some conversations, nothing official. There was some talk between Xi and Trudeau. And um, uh, Trudeau says he brought up the issue of our two Canadian businessmen who are being held. And let's call it what it is. They're hostages. So I had the opportunity about an hour and a half ago, we had 10 minutes uh, to catch Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party, of course, Conservative Party of Canada. He was about to get on an airplane, so we had 10 minutes to uh, talk to Mr. Scheer about a number of issues. I want to play that back for you now, and I began by speaking with him about the G20, about Trudeau, and about G. Have a listen. Mr. Shear, let me ask you first of all about the G20, and we have, of course, uh, video evidence of Mr. Trudeau and the president of China, Xi, ignoring one another, although there are reports now that they exchanged some words on the sidelines of a cultural event later on, and the prime minister is said to have brought up the issue of the two Canadian businessmen, now, let's call them what they are, hostages. What do you say to that? No.
2: Well, uh, Justin Trudeau has completely failed on this file. He has shown tremendous weakness. Uh, I believe the Chinese have learned what Donald Trump learned about Justin Trudeau, and that is that you can walk all over him without any consequences. Uh, He was unable to get a a real formal meeting, but underneath all of this is we now have a situation where two Canadians are being held illegally, and uh, they block our exports of canola, pork, and beef, They have escalated the situation and trudeau has literally done nothing in response i have called on trudeau to at the very least pull taxpayers funding the canadian taxpayers funding from the asian infrastructure bank which is controlled by china to build roads and bridges in other countries to expand china's influence in that region at the very least we should show the government of china that when they treat canadians like this we're not going to fund their foreign policy
0: we also have the situation with uh, Chinese jets buzzing a Canadian ship, in fact two Canadian ships, and, uh, and trailing them on the ocean for some 4,000 kilometers, maybe a kilometer or so, so away from the ships. Very strong message from, uh, from China, not really responded to by Canada.
2: No, and it's quite clear that we are being bullied. Uh, We have uh, a a system in this country where it's based on the rule of law. We have uh, an official from Huawei being held pending an uh, extradition hearing, which will all be uh, handled by an independent judiciary. And China's trying to bully us into uh, compromising that. Uh, I believe that... uh, the government of china will uh, at least respond to some move of strength uh you we have got to start standing up for ourselves uh, this situation is escalating if we do nothing if we do absolutely nothing i believe we can expect more action on other fronts uh the approach of justin trudeau is to sit back and ask for ask our friends to put a good word in for uh, for us but he's not willing to take any steps to show the government of China that we're willing to stand up for ourselves. Pulling funding from the Asian Infrastructure Bank should be a no-brainer. Why are we sending Canadian taxpayers money to help China's foreign policy? Today, I called on the government, uh, the Canadian government to take further action. We should be increasing our inspections of Chinese imports coming into Canada so we can find more fentanyl before it gets on our streets, so we can find more counterfeit goods that come from uh, China. I've announced that we should start to prepare the work for retaliatory tariffs we buy $75 billion worth of goods from China. We can have an impact in, on, on that relationship and show some resolve and strength if we took
0: action. Okay, let me get into some other issues with you uh, quickly. We don't have a lot of time. Let me start uh, with the Ontario court that has supported Mr. Trudeau's carbon tax it was a split decision but the uh, the court is arguing that the trudeau government has the right to uh, impose a carbon tax on the on the province of ontario you say what to that
2: well i certainly am disappointed by the overall ruling and i do think that the dissenting judges made some very good points about the uh, the effect on our constitutional framework between provincial and federal jurisdiction uh, i certainly agree with their remarks on that uh, I believe, though, we're into the stage now where the voters of Canada will be able to ultimately pronounce it. It will be the decision of the voters in this country that will decide whether or not there is a carbon tax. At this election, it will be a very, very clear contrast between Trudeau's failed approach, a carbon tax that raises the cost of literally everything that has been shown not to meet our Paris targets, or our plan of cancelling the carbon tax and investing in technology and innovation.
0: So, uh, just fundamentally, for the people who may not be aware of the very basics of the Conservative Party's carbon, or uh, not carbon tax, but uh, climate policy, w- what is it? What are you suggesting needs to be done? Give us one, two, three.
2: Yeah, basically, it's uh, green technology, not taxes. It's providing incentives and support for uh, large emitters to invest in the types of research and development that has already been shown to work, already been shown to reduce emissions. It's taking the climate change flight site global. It's recognizing the fact that we here in Canada could shut everything off tomorrow morning and unplug every appliance and shut down all the power plants and everyone stop driving and countries like China and India and Indonesia would replace all of that within within a matter of days. So we need to leverage the clean technology that we've been de- that we've developed here in Canada to help other countries lower their emissions, those countries who put far more CO2 out in the atmosphere than we do. Uh, that would actually have a tangible effect on our environment. And recognizing that the fight to for a cleaner environment goes beyond just CO2 emissions, I've announced as part of our plan cleaning up our rivers and lakes by banning the practice of putting an end to the practice of cities and towns dumping raw sewage into rivers lakes and oceans so it's a comprehensive plan and i'm excited to uh, to take it to the canadian people this october
0: let me ask you about the city of vancouver council voted seven to four to support a motion that global fossil fuel companies pay their share of costs to the city from climate change. They're expecting federal and provincial governments to enact laws in this regard. You know my show airs on CKNW in Vancouver. Uh, if you become the Prime Minister of Canada, will you do this?
2: Uh, no we're not going to, uh, uh, to to engage in that type of, uh, of of response we're going to have our own plan which will re- reduce co2 emissions which will uh, incentivize and accelerate the development of technologies that that uh, that increase the efficiency of industries here in Canada and, and and recognizing that you know the people in in Vancouver and British Columbia benefit a great deal from the energy sector the LNG development that the Conservatives uh, uh, supported and promoted uh, is going to create thousands and thousands of jobs the, the cruise ship industry that comes into uh, Vancouver that supports many many jobs in that area they you know the, they, they run on uh, on uh, on oil and gas so uh, we have to recognize that, there are, uh, that that the the relationship in this country between our energy sector, people who, who use it to heat their homes, to drive to work, who are employed by it, is beneficial. And we can invest in making sure that emissions go down while at the same time supporting the energy sector and making sure that people are able to continue to have a livelihood thanks to it.
0: All right. I have to ask you about this. This is an important issue, and it has people talking my social media my twitter account has just been over the top today the announcement of an agreement reached between Admiral Mark Norman and the Ministry of National Defense and the Department of National Defense. Question is, is it a non-disclosure agreement? They won't confirm or deny, but a spokesman said the agreement is confidential, which is, I believe, just semantics. And when public monies are involved, as they are in this case, with all its twists and turns and criminal investigation by the RCMP, twice public speculation by Trudeau, that the Admiral would see the inside of a courtroom followed by the prosecution becoming aware of information which caused the prosecution to say no mas, this is far too public a mess. Uh, it's also a great deal of uh, insult and personal assault on the 38-year 38 career, 38 career of a senior military officer for the details now to go silent. And, Mr. Shear, it's public money. Would you agree, do we have the right to know as Canadians how much money is involved in this agreement between the admiral and the government?
2: absolutely this whole thing just stinks of another cover-up you know jody wilson Raybould and jane philpot philpot were subject to a a gag order to prevent them from speaking the entire truth about the smc lablin affair and this just reeks of justin trudeau you know, sliding a check across to, to, to make sure that the truth doesn't come out of uh, this sordid affair. He was up to his eyeballs in this whole scandal from from the day that the cabinet meant to, to try to overturn a, a contract uh, for political reasons to him publicly speculating or announcing that the RCMP would be pressing charges before they had come to that conclusion. Uh, and then the abrupt end of the uh, trial after the government spent months trying to block access to important data to me there's two things here one of course the dollar amount we as taxpayers have a right to know how much it's costing us to cover up uh, this scandal but two i want to hear what mark norman has to say i don't believe that the government should enforce a non-disclosure that prevents him from telling his side of the story that uh that allows him to uh to, that allows mark norman to go over the details of this case to explain what happened to him that uh, the truth needs to come out here and there's no price tag you can put on keeping canadians from knowing the truth
0: i couldn't agree with you more and everyone has great empathy for what happened to the admiral and his family but we're talking public monies here and there's no way the federal government should be able to all to hide what they've decided is appropriate from canadians who are paying the bills mr sheer thank you so much for the time
2: thank you very much always a pleasure
0: so we had uh, ten minutes, and we took the ten minutes to speak with Andrew Shear. And uh, a lot has been said about the G20 and G and Trudeau, and we're going to be hearing more uh, before the end of the hour. Um, by Doctor, from Doctor Andrew's core, he'll be joining us from Europe. He's the. Uh, the head of the uh, Journal of Political Risk. And he's written an op-ed piece, Canada's Conflict with China is a Moral Failure of Democratic Allies. So i will to speak with Dr. Corr before the end of the hour. But I do want to ask you a question. And we'll develop this further in the next hour when we speak with David Butt, criminal lawyer uh, in Toronto on non-disclosure agreements, such as we assume was negotiated between the federal government or the Department of National Defense, the Ministry of National Defense, and Admiral Mark Norman, Um, and uh, whether we have the right to know the monies that are involved, and I will continuously argue that, given the fact—and again, great empathy for the admiral—we know we've spoken. We, we, we know that over four hundred thousand dollars were delivered by Canadians to the GoFundMe page supporting Admiral Norman when it was, when it was known nationally that his 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 legal expenses weren't going to be covered by the government. Uh, but Trudeau and some other government members hired outside lawyers to to represent them. Uh, should they be called to a trial? Were there a trial? So great empathy for the admiral. I I I I don't think we can give him enough to make up for what he's endured. But this is taxpayer money. And I believe we have the right to know how much money is involved. I believe we have the right to know that. And for the Department of National Defense spokesperson to say Essentially, we're not going to confirm that it's a non-disclosure agreement, but we will tell you that the agreement is confidential. What? You're not going to tell us whether it's a non-disclosure agreement, but you will tell us that it's confidential. So either way, we don't find out. We have the right to know, because what this is is just an effort to get Mr. Trudeau off the hook on the Mark Norman case. It is the federal government, and they have an agreement with the Admiral, and it's been described as a nondisclosure agreement. And as we've been saying today, then the question was asked of the government, is it a nondisclosure agreement? And I'm paraphrasing here, and the answer came back, well, well, uh, we can't tell you, uh, but we can tell you that it's confidential, So it's the same thing, semantics, but it's using public money, taxpayer money, to provide the admiral with relief from the horrors he experienced, and I don't think there's a single Canadian who begrudges Admiral Norman getting relief from what he's gone through. What he faced was financial ruin. What he faced was his reputation being destroyed. They did everything they could to destroy his reputation. Uh, After he was removed from his command, uh, for about a week, they wouldn't say why. And so there was all this speculation about what he'd done, possibly. Turns out, even though the prime minister twice publicly mused about Admiral Norman being in a Canadian courtroom, well, the prosecutors rolled over. When they realized, when they received certain information, which they should have received from the government earlier, I'm guessing, they didn't have a case. And so now, to get Trudeau off the political hook for the 21st of October, they're going to provide uh, the Admiral with, a, with an agreement, with, 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 with funds. And we have the right to know what, what's involved, because it's public funds. It's not private funds. There's a big difference, at least from my perspective. David Budd joins us, former prosecutor, uh, one of this country's uh, most preeminent criminal defense lawyers, also writes uh, op-eds for the Globe and Meal, has uh, appeared before the Supreme Court of Canada, argued cases before the Supreme Court. And David, thank you very much for for joining us on uh, on, on this. This is a... Important and increasingly complicated situation when they they won't tell us if it's an NDA, but add the words that it's a confidential agreement. How do I mean? How do we make sense of that?
4: Yes, it is complicated. There's a number of uh, uh, principles at at play here. Uh, Now, just first of all, the fact they won't say anything about what it is or isn't. Uh, Whenever there is an agreement. Um, not to disclose the essence of any agreement that is reached, people, uh, quite rightly, approach those very, very cautiously because there is invariably a term in that agreement that if anybody breaches and does disclose any information, uh, the underlying agreement, whether it's to pay somebody some money or, or whatever, um, is, is automatically unraveled. So everybody in the interests, everybody involved in negotiating it, in the interests of not unraveling it, will basically say nothing, and uh, that's actually quite common. So what what you're hearing is is very very typical in terms of the landscape of these kinds of agreements that that settle disputes.
0: Okay, now there's the difference between the private dispute and the public, the private monies. And public monies. In this case, we're talking public monies, and we all know what a horrific series of events the uh, the admiral experienced. Um, do we have legal grounds? Uh, I, I would suggest we have moral grounds. Do we have legal grounds to say to the government, we we need to know. We have the right to know the amount of money that's involved here.
4: Yeah, it's a very nuanced question, Roy, it's a very good one. Uh, you know, first of all, as, as uh, both Mr. Shear and you have pointed out, you know, these are taxpayer dollars that are involved. And so, um, you know, on, on the surface level, the initial reaction might be, well, it's our money. We need to know. Um, it's actually a little more nuanced than that. Uh, the federal government is one of the country's biggest employers. And so as an employer, their relationships with the people they employ do carry with them some important privacy uh, protections and uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, we see quite commonly for example when when city council wants to talk about employment matters they will go in camera and invariably you know the press will holler and scream and so on but uh, it's it's uh, an established practice that when you are dealing with sensitive employment issues. Uh, going in camera or or being confidential about the details uh, is pres- is preserving important privacy rights that public sector employees possess as well as private sector employees. So that's the that's the other side of the coin in the sense that there may be, and of course we don't know anything about this, so we can't not say definitively. But it may be that there's some important. Uh, privacy principles at play as well uh, in terms of the employment relationship that existed in that particular case. So that's just another complicating factor to a a very nuanced issue.
0: Would we then be talking...
4: From the validity of the the complaints, you know, around openness about taxpayer dollars, it just adds another perspective to the discussion.
0: We're not talking about somebody being dismissed for, for cause. It's not that kind of situation. Right. Uh,
4: it, it, it doesn't appear to be. That's, that the, you know, the thing is, yeah. we don't know. Uh, so the, you know, what is agreed upon um, you know, in, that, in that agreement is something that only the parties will ever know. And, and as we've seen, they've been very, very cautious in terms of talking about it, and, and uh, rightly so. Uh, but obviously, we do have a situation where somebody uh, was employed at a very high level and functioning at a very high level, and as, as you mentioned in your opening, uh, you know, had that employment cut short in um, problematic circumstances, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's not surprising that there would be some negotiations around um, uh, what would happen to this person in terms of either moving on or coming back. And it appears that he's moving on. And there were would also have been some agreement around... Um, Maybe, uh, perhaps, some payment, but nobody really knows. Um, in, in terms of, of having uh, Mr. Norman move on to a different career,
0: well, he did say he wanted to go back to his job, and the Chief of Defence Staff said he was happy to have the Admiral come back, not necessarily to his previous position. And then the Minister of uh, of Defence said that he wasn't going to be going back to that position. The Admiral also said he wanted to share with Canadians, he had a lot to share with Canadians about what happened. And so we've been anxiously awaiting to hear what, what that is. And, and so if, if it's a situation where they can say, look, we had a private negotiation with uh, Admiral Norman, we've come to our, uh, our, an agreement and uh, it's, it's a confidential agreement. And you're not going to know what's involved, you the public, even though it's taxpayer money. What it then becomes, David, uh, and and I don't see how it can be interpreted as anything else, given the fact that the prime minister speculated twice that the the admiral would find himself in a courtroom, um, that uh, Trudeau wouldn't stick around for the apology in parliament to to Admiral Norman. I know that doesn't carry any legal weight, but it certainly... Adds to the overall picture for for people who are observing this, then it looks starts to look like an effort that was made not to help the admiral, but to help the prime minister to get him off the hook, get him out of the media glare, in time for the election. Sure, the admiral gets what he needs, wonderful great, and we're happy for that. And Trudeau gets out of the line of uh, of of uh, investigative fire, as it were. It's it's it leaves you with a pretty bad taste. Yeah, it's um,
4: and again, you know these kinds of agreements uh, are are routinely utilized and the reason that they're utilized so um, ubiquitously is because uh, there is as as you've mentioned benefit to both parties and uh, they can reach an agreement when each party thinks that the benefits of that agreement outweigh the drawbacks and no doubt uh, you know that the uh, from a political perspective the government uh, who entered into the agreement is facing some blowback in, in exactly this kind of discussion. Uh, and the, um, uh, you know, on the flip side, uh, you know, this is um, over and nobody will be saying anything more about it, so the oxygen on the issue will have gone out of the room. You know, these are all, these are all calculated decisions, strategic decisions, and on both sides, you know, uh, Mr. Norman said at one point uh, that he wants to say a lot. Uh, now he's not going to be saying anything. Uh, one can infer that uh, he reached a considered decision that it was uh, worth his while to uh, not say anything going forward and what did he get for that nobody knows but uh, one can infer that it was a considered decision that it was now in his best interest not to say anything so uh, you know if both people or both sides look at these and, and enter into them uh, they they tend to be as I say widely used because you can, you can delicately balance competing interests well, that's not to say they're they're a perfect mechanism uh, to mm-hmm. resolve disputes they they're, they're not.
0: Well, I you know again uh, I said earlier and I don't intend to drag you into this but I, I suggested earlier maybe they can work out a non-disclosure agreement with Jody wilson raybould not that she would it's just the cynic in me saying if you want to clear the decks of any obstacles for the prime minister just go ahead and spend public money. Uh, I <laughs> I received an email. I want to read it to you. I'm a retired plaintiff's lawyer. If Admiral Norman said to the feds and Trudeau Group, if you want confidentiality, that'll cost you extra. Otherwise, see you in civil court. I'm fine with it. If the feds said, we'll not pay you anything if it's not confidential and we will drag it out for years, I would be enraged. So far, we don't know.
4: Right. And and, uh, that's right. the um the negotiation dynamic uh, led to a result that both parties signed on to Uh, i have no doubt that both parties were uh, very capably represented and uh, um, one can um, hope and indeed almost expect that neither party pulled the wool over over the other one's eyes uh, and that the agreement was probably not uh one-sided um, as I say, there's just too much at stake, and, and uh, both of them, I'm sure, had uh, very talented legal help in, in reaching that conclusion. Okay. So, so, the,
0: so the voter then has to make the decision. The person like like me and everyone else who's going to vote, we have to look at the situation for what it is and accept that we may never know what monies were involved, if monies were involved. I have to assume there were. Um, we may never know, but we'll just have to hold that uh, that in uh under consideration on the day we won't
4: yes and and uh, you know it's a situation where we don't know what we don't know and uh, as i say these these are not perfect agreements by any stretch one sees criticism of them for example in the context of me too where uh, very powerful men uh, alleged to be sexual predators um, engage in confidential settlements and the you know the very serious question that comes up is yeah well that might be very good for that particular person who was victimized or allegedly victimized. But what do we really know about uh, what happened? And uh, so th- there is a tension, um, a very important tension between openness and and getting settlements done. And, uh, you know, they're both important principles, but uh, neither one of them is self-evidently the right way to
0: go. Yeah, and the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Me Too version, there's no public monies involved. It's public. It's private money. In this case, it's it's not the prime minister's money. It's not the liberal government's money. I know they're going to say it's the government of Canada's money, but we know who benefits from this. Uh, David, I uh, I really appreciate it. you you If I ever needed representation in a courtroom, I'd want you well, let's sitting beside me. let hope that never me. happens, Roy. No, I hope not. <laughs> but <laughs> if I can afford you, I want you sitting right beside me. You're very kind. Thank you, David. All the best. My pleasure. David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto, one of the very best in the country, has argued before the Supreme Court. The MV motor vehicle, Asterix, that's the ship that was purchased by Federal Fleet Services, a sister company to Davy Shipbuilding, Asterix was a commercial container ship converted into the Canadian Navy supply ship and brought in on time and on budget, and the ship is doing tremendous service for the Royal Canadian Navy. Joining us on the program, and I apologize, I've been bumbling his name, is uh, Spencer Fraser. He's the CEO of Federal Fleet Services, and um, uh, Mr. Fraser, thank you very much for the time. I would like to start with this question. Your company bought and still owns the Asterix, is that correct?
3: That's correct, Roy.
0: And and you're leasing it to the Canadian Navy for 10 years. That's correct, yes. So and another point that we want to get at is is the cost uh, of the construction of the asterisk to move it, to, to, to switch it from the container ship to the Navy su- supply ship. Taxpayers, right. pa- taxpayers weren't on the hook for that at all, were they?
3: no they weren't in fact uh the key thing here i think roy is for uh, your listeners is that not only did we uh, deliver on time and uh, on budget for which we're very proud uh, when we set up the uh the deal with the government um the taxpayer of canada was not on the hook until we actually delivered so if we were late or if we didn't meet uh, the requirements of the royal canadian navy we wouldn't get paid so i think uh, taking that risk And being able to deliver on it, we certainly uh, not only set the benchmark here in Canada for procurement, uh, large, complex procurements, but based on uh, the uh, uh, interest we've generated worldwide, I think it's now become a leading uh, model for other navies and militaries around the world.
0: I was actually reading that, that the Resolve-class naval supply ship, which the asterisk is, uh, is rated on a par with the world's very best. Mr. Fraser... What was it about? Uh, when did you take ownership of the asterix, and what was it about the ship that made it made it right for the project? Right,
3: good question, Roy. So, um, if you're going to build a fleet refueler or convert a ship to uh, be a, a replenishment ship for the uh, the Navy, it's got to be fast and, uh, frankly, nimble. So, when the uh, former protector class, HMCS protector and preserver, uh, one caught fire and one rusted out in uh, uh, late 2013, early 2014. Uh, We did a survey of the uh, world's market and found a class of brand new German-built 1,700 container ships that have a very high speed, very beautifully built Um, And what we actually did, just to to be very specific for your listeners, is that we we went to the government and said, look, we can do the conversion, you can buy it, you can lease it, you can lease to buy it, Um, and we did that in 24 months. So while there is a 10-year lease, the government's had an option to buy the ship uh, since we started service uh, last February. And uh, to put it in context, it's coming in, uh, not only did we arrive on budget on time, But we currently arrived and deliver the ship the capability at one quarter of the price, not 10% less, but one quarter of the price of what they're currently paying for a ship they've been waiting on for over a decade uh, from a shipyard on the West Coast. Wow. So uh, that's how the whole context has started.
0: Wow. Uh, and and this was so the, to make it clear, this wasn't an, an, this was not an old container ship that was bought and then modified to serve the navy. This was a, this was a, a world class ship to begin with.
3: World class, uh, German built, as I said. So uh, uh, built like a German tank. Um, we we brought it to Canada. Uh, we tore it down to the gunnels. Think of a canoe. We kept the engine room. We added a second engine room. And then we used a modular construction um, with a, a, a Pan Canadian Supply Team, uh, suppliers from across Canada. In fact, over 900. And we uh, modularly rebuilt the ship into its current uh, form. So
0: huge success. So, so talk to us, please, about some of the special features on the Asterix because it, it performs many different functions within the Royal Canadian Navy. Like I understand, there's a full operating room on the That's ship. Correct.
3: Yes, yes. So we have the fuel. We, we provide aviation fuel as well as ship's fuel. We provide uh, food, uh, uh, spare parts, ammunition. Uh, but integrated into the uh, ship is a hospital the size you would find in a small town. Uh, you know, It's got uh, full operating rooms, both dental and uh, uh, standard operating rooms, a full clinic. It's got a ward. It can take... Uh, uh, if we have to go off for a humanitarian assistance uh, mission like in Haiti, uh, we can we can provide basically a sea-based hospital um, and forward logistics for uh,
0: Canadian Forces personnel. And this ship could also be fitted for war fighting capability or at least capability to defend itself. That's correct. So when we
3: designed the ship, um, uh, we weren't sure if the Navy or the Canadian government, because it was really the Canadian government, not the Navy, uh, to decide if they were going to lease it, uh, lease to buy, or uh, buy it outright. right. Uh, because you got to remember, as you, you earlier pointed out, Canada had no tankers. So we were the only Western or NATO Navy without an ability to refuel its ships, its, its frigates, which had just gone through... a you know, like a 4 to $5 billion refit. So we have all these Lamborghinis that can uh, <laughs> patrol at high speed, but we had no way of refueling them on, you know, the longest coast, uh, coastline in the world. Oh my. Uh, so, um, yeah, so we, um, uh, we, we, we converted the ship. Um, it's got uh, all the capabilities that you would expect in a modern uh, replenishment ship. We're very proud to say that we were able to showcase, uh, uh, very proud, actually. Uh, some Canadian content. Uh, the main equipment uh, for the transfer of fuel, there's a company in Etobicoke, Ontario here called uh, uh, Hepburn Engineering. They're one of three manufacturers worldwide. They, they dominate the market, so we're extremely happy to have them on our team. Uh, we had a company out west uh, called OSI, who makes integrated bridges, so we were the first to bring that capability into the ship. A company out of Montreal who's the world leaders in automated control systems for ships, uh, for machinery, uh, L3 Maps, brought them in. And, uh, Roy, to put it in context, the old ships had about 350 people on board. um, And we're currently uh, capable of meeting our mission requirements with about 80 people. Uh, That's amazing. So uh, very, very uh, happy with the outcome.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I was uh, once an ordinary seaman standard in the uh, Royal Canadian Naval Reserve and lowest rank in the Navy, Mr. Fraser, and as I've often said, I fought very hard to stay there, and uh, (laughs) which always gets a bit of a chuckle, (laughs) but I did, I did, I did, Uh, and I found out that they actually do have brigs on ships because I got put in one, but... um, just just because I was uh, naughty, um, for a brief brief, I shouldn't be telling these stories, should I? I should just just <laughs> sh- I should just be quiet. Uh, are there any other uh, Resolve class naval supply ships on the way?
3: Well, when we um, when we started uh, the program, we offered the government of Canada two ships. Obviously, if you do a second ship right after you do your first, you've got the learning curve. Um, and we offered that ship at just over $500 million. So it would have been about $100 million savings to the uh, uh, the Canadian public, the taxpayer. Um, we thought that was quite significant. Um, the uh, government has opted not to pursue that option. Um, they, uh, there's been this promise of these new ships coming from the West Coast. You've got to remember that the national shipbuilding strategy has been going on longer now than the Second World War. And not a single warship has been delivered um, and the uh, the joint support ships that were supposed to be delivered in 2017 uh, was one of the reasons they said, well, we don't need a second uh, asterisk. We call it the Obelix because we've got one arriving right away. Then it was 2019. Then it was 2021. Then it was 2023 with reservations. Now it looks like it's 2025. In fact, they've had to reshuffle the deck on what ships get delivered uh, with the Coast Guard. Um, to put the Navy uh, joint supply ship ahead of uh, the oceanography uh, vessel that's desperately needed by the Coast Guard, which was to replace a 55-year-old ship. Um, you know. So oh. we've offered a second ship. We've offered it a rebate. Um, uh, Canada has a requirement for, originally it had a requirement for four replenishment ships. It had three previously. Uh, But because we spent a lot more time deployed internationally, uh, two per coast when you've got one in refit, that type of thing. So four is what the requirement was. But over a decade, as the price of the joint support ship went through the roof, it got whittled down to three, and then it was two plus one, and then it was two. But the Navy has been very clear since 2005 that, you know, it needs four ships. Uh, the strong, secure, and engaged uh, white paper that the Liberals brought out uh, calls for two task groups per coast, so at least two. So we're, we're pushing. And to put it in context, Roy, the, the Germans, much smaller coastline, um, comparable-sized Navy, they have five ships that provide their Navy with replenishment capability. Five. Not not one,
0: um, <laughs> but five. I, if this were television you'd see that I'm shaking my head um, this is this is disturbing to know at the same time it's good to know that you're able to do what you did and within two years uh, take this ship from from a container ship a world-class container ship and turn it around and turn it into a world-class Naval Supply Ship, which is now serving the Royal Canadian Navy. The fact that we only have one makes me think of, 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 of somebody building a, a skyscraper and then forgetting about the elevators.
3: Well, Roy, here's, here's an interesting fact. So the ship start deployed. Its home port is Halifax. So it was converted in Quebec and transited uh, uh, to Halifax, its home port. And it deployed from Halifax on the 11th of April last year. So today marks its 444th day deployed, and it's been going nonstop. Now to put that in context, if you put on your old Navy hat, very, very few warships worldwide are use that intensely. So uh, uh, we were very fortunate to be allowed by the Navy to fly the blue ensign, which is the, the warships, the frigates fly a white ensign, the, the old merchant navy uh, ships fly the blue ensign of Canada. So my joint uh, civilian uh, crew that supports the military crew that's on board, uh, you know, we're very proud of what we're doing, and we're not trying to throw sticks in anyone's spokes. All we're trying to say is, look, Canada needs more ships. Uh, Davies Shipyard represents 50% of Canada's shipbuilding capability. And, uh, you know, uh, we can't build in Canada cargo ships that you're competing against third-world countries, but when it comes to highly specialized vessels, icebreakers, warships, ferries... Uh, as we've proven, we're very price competitive. So uh, if I sound a bit bullish, it's because we are. Good for you. Um, uh, my background I is 20 years in the Navy. Uh, very proud of uh, my service. I ran a tech company that exported into 35 countries. And, uh, you know, there's a great business book out there, Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson. It came out in the 2000s, mid-2000s. But, you know, we, we have to be less uh, uh, less timid about uh, touting our capabilities. We had a 1,000 Canadian ship workers building the Asterix, wow. over 900 subcontractors. That's huge. And that I'll tell huge. you, all those people are motivated to do a second one. And uh, so we've made a lot of noise. There's been recent announcements for a third shipyard, yep. and uh, we're pushing like like heck. We've got the capabilities. Are somewhat. We've only got about 400 people working in the yard right now, but we can ramp up quickly. Uh, we've got motivated uh, ship workers, so yeah, so we're we're bullish.
0: Well, uh, I I think that given what you've done and what you're capable of doing, you should be getting more of these contracts because we certainly need the deployment. We need we need the ships. Thank you for your service, by the way. Thank thank you, thank you for service to Canada. Thank you. All right, Mr. Fraser. I hope you'll come back. I'd, I have I'd like to have you back another time.
3: Absolutely. Well, keep Posted on the Good Ship Asterix, and people can uh, look at our website. Track it's uh, worldwide. It's in Japan right now. Okay. Um, and uh, as you said, it was uh, off the coast of uh, Taiwan. We went through uh, the uh, Taiwan Straits between China and Taiwan, and along with HMCS Regina, and our uh, Chinese uh, friends sent a few of their uh, modern fighters out to, okay. to do a flyby. And, uh, <laughs> that's one.
0: That's one way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. So. All and, right. Uh, all right. Yeah. I, I thank you for the time. What's the website? Uh, federal Fleet Services. Yeah. Dot uh, Federal CA, and you can track the uh, the movements of the asterisk. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roy. There's uh, Spencer Fraser, the CEO of Federal Fleet Services. Amazing, huh? On time and on budget in two years, and uh, they've got another shipbuilding program that's been going on longer than the Second World War, and they haven't delivered one. Private enterprise versus Government service. Now, all of the talk is in, in basketball. Anywhere I go on online now, I'm seeing the rumors that Kawhi Leonard and Kevin Durant uh, may want to play together. They've talked to one another about wanting to play on the same team. And uh, I don't think Durant is going to be playing next year with the Achilles injury, but who knows? He may be a fast healer. But now it brings the fans in because you start to get emotionally involved. You know, they just saw the Raptors win the NBA championship. You don't want Kawhi to leave. Why would he leave, people ask? Well, he's American. California's home. And we as fans, we're emotionally invested. But the players, they may have some emotional investment, but they also have, frankly, uh, that's a financial situation for them as well. They're, they're athletes and they get paid to do their job. Joining me on the program to speak about all of this is Professor Guy Harrison. He received his Ph.D. from Arizona State University. is an assistant professor at Youngstown State University in Ohio and conducts research on sports media, currently writing a book on women sportscasters called On the Sidelines, will be released next year. Professor Harrison, thank you very much for the time. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Roy. Appreciate it. So, so here we are. I mean, we're all engaged. We're all involved. We've just been watched. We just watched the Raptors take down everybody and 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 get the trophy. And and the talk has all along been, will Kawhi leave? Will he stay? Um, can you put that put some perspective to that? And what do you make of the stories about Kawhi and Kevin Durant? Uh, talking to one another and wanting perhaps to play on the same team. How do, how do you interpret all of this?
1: Sure. So um, there's a couple things that I that I look at uh, when we talk about uh, rumors such as these. You know, usually when they're released in the press, uh, they're, they're leaked to the press because someone has something to gain out of it, either contract leverage or trade leverage. Uh, in the case of the NBA and the way NBA contracts work um we know pretty much what we know the contract the Raptors can offer him we know the contracts that any other team can offer him so you know in that in that case in the case of an NBA star like Kawhi Leonard there's not a whole lot of question as to you know who's playing who here so you know you look at a report like this and you think okay well maybe there's there, there's a good chance that this is a valid, a valid case. Um, you know, I, I, know from a loyalty standpoint, you know, there's another thing to consider here, which is that, you know, Kawhi did not choose to go to Toronto, although he did talk his way out of San Antonio. Uh, but he was traded to Toronto. It wasn't a free agency situation. So, you know, it's not a case where, you um, you know, he he went to Toronto on his own accord. Although he may have had some say as to where his trade destination was, uh, but ultimately, you know, you think about loyalty. How much did Kawhi really have at the beginning? How much of a say did he have going mm-hmm. to Toronto? That's another question I would ask. Uh,
0: athletes themselves, how important is it generally to an athlete? And they're successful. They make mil- they know the best ones make millions and millions of dollars. So money's not really an issue. Pride may be, mm-hmm. ego may be, I'm sure it is, with so very strong personalities. Um, so how much of a draw is playing at home? Kawhi's from California. We know the Lakers are going to talk to him. Uh, the Warriors, and I'm not going to talk to him, but the Clippers have interest. How much? How much of a draw is playing at home?
1: Um, you know, these days I think it's I think it's a pretty strong draw. Uh, in, in general, the things that matter to athletes now are much different than they were twenty. We could even say maybe even ten years ago. Uh, you know, I think this all started uh, with LeBron James and his first decision to leave Cleveland for Miami, and people said, you know, how could he do that? Like he has no loyalty to Cleveland. Um, Pub- he was he was public he was public enemy number one. Ohio. <laughs> um, but but regardless, he left Cleveland because he wanted to go play with his friends, which is which at that point was unheard of. Um, but I think this speaks to sort of a generational thing that that transcends sports. This is something that um, we've seen at least here in the U.S. Uh, in terms of this generation of, of workers who said, you know, I don't have to be. I don't have to be somewhere I don't want to be. I can pick and choose where I want to go. And that, that line of thinking is more commonplace with this generation. So I think for athletes, um, I think, you know, depending on how much of a uh, connection they have to home, that would be a pretty strong
0: go. Are we fans too invested in teams? None of the We don't know any of the players. We have no out no, we know we have no input on the outcome of the game. Generally, I mean, we might make a lot of noise at a home game, but are we too invested? I sent you an email, and I, I indicated to you that I'd lived for many years in Quebec, and there's a there's a sense in in the province of Quebec if you're a successful, um, a very successful, highly skilled. NHL hockey player, that you have a responsibility at some time in your career to play for the Montreal Canadiens, and if you uh-huh. don't, then you're disloyal, and you hear about uh-huh. it for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Are, are we just too Are we just too invested in, in 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 the teams and and the athletes, or is it just the way it ought to be because we're fans?
1: Um, yeah, I would side with. That's just that's how it ought to be. That's how it is. Uh, you know the reason sports has grown from this sort of leisurely activity to uh, a transnational multi-billion dollar industry is because we are so passionate about it. Um, It is a very um, something that we take civic pride in and in the case of the Toronto Raptors it's national pride. Um, And you know I don't I don't know you know I, I come from the school of you know who are we to decide what is something what's something that we're too passionate about or things that we're not passionate enough. Of course, there are things such as education that maybe <laughs> that maybe certain people could be more uh, passionate about, but I, I don't think that sports is, is one of those things that, that we can be too passionate about. I grew up in Philadelphia, which has... A, a I would say well-deserved reputation as a town that is very passionate about its sports um, and again it just comes down to a civic pride thing and I know um, that's part of it for, for Mon- the Montreal Canadiens and having uh, athletes go there who who are French speaking um, I know that there's that sense of loyalty that they, they want athletes who, who have that identity to, to sign there it goes back to civic again <laughs>
0: Let me ask you another question. This has been sure. uh, bandied about for years, and particularly since athletes' salaries reached the stratosphere. I remember speaking to John Ferguson uh, years ago, uh, long after he'd finished his NHL career. And he told me that in 1967, when the Canadians lost the Stanley Cup uh, final game against the, 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 the Maple Leafs, last time Maple Leafs won the Cup, John Fergie told me that he was the second highest paid Montreal Canadiens player at 60000 a year. And the most highly paid player was John Beliveau, who today would be getting $20 million. He was getting 80000 a year. Uh, today, we're dealing with the 10 15 $20, 25000000 million a year player. And and attending a game becomes a difficult proposition for many fans. I received an email, and I sent you a note about this, from a dad who lives 15 minutes from uh, Blue Jays' uh, home field and says, I can't take my kids. I can't afford it. Mm -hmm. I just can't afford to take them. I can't afford the tickets. I can't afford the parking. I can't afford the souvenirs. I can't afford the concessions. So he gets in his car, and he drives over an hour to go to the United States to watch AAA. Um, A. Is the is the is the is the salt of the earth fan being priced out of enjoying the game in person? Mm. Um,
1: you know, this is most certainly an issue um, that I think sports are going to have to reckon with sooner or later. Uh, I would say on this issue, though, I side more with the players and the owners um, because when you think about you know you mentioned what the what the NHL salaries were uh, back in the '60s, you think about how um, the salaries have exploded. Much of that has to do with the explosion of sports on television. That's where most of that money comes from. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much uh, of the higher ticket prices and higher souvenirs and concessions, how much of that has to do with players, the increase in player salaries. But I would gather, I, I would, I would guess, not that much. Um, Because, as I said, most of that money is coming from television now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when you think about it, when you think about how exponentially um, the cost of those items has grown, it's like, where does the money go? If the TV money is primarily paying for the athletes, who's pocketing this other money that teams are getting at the gate, that they're getting at concessions? Um, I would I would point the finger at the owners rather than the players uh, because the fact of the matter is when you think about how big of an industry sports is the athlete the average athlete anyway is still getting far less money relative to how much money is actually being made um, so a lot of that is being kept at the executive levels uh, so you know I would say to the owners open up your books let us see where is this money going um, when well, we're paying, you know, $15 for a phone finger with the team logo on it.
0: <laughs> That's a, I see those things, and I wonder why anybody spends any money. Uh, yeah, pre- true. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Professor Harrison, good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. I hope you'll come back. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Professor Guy Harrison, uh, Youngstown State University in Ohio, and he's uh, writing a book. He's, his research is on the sports and media, and he's writing a book on women sportscasters called On the Sidelines. It'll be released in 2020. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger was harassed at his home yesterday morning early, around 7 o'clock, from what I understand. I've known the mayor for many years, he's a good guy. And he joins us on the program. Mr. Mayor, good to talk to you. Was it 7 o'clock yesterday morning? Yeah, about 7,
5: 7.10, something in that order, yeah.
0: So what happened? Describe the situation for our listeners across the country, please.
5: Well, I was up, uh, I'm generally up uh, 5.30, 6 o'clock and uh, having a coffee, checking out the newspaper, catching up on emails. And all of a sudden there's a, a lot of noise outside, a lot of music and then uh, some violent banging on the door multiple, multiple times and then yelling and shouting and so my wife called down and said are you playing some sort of strange music or are you watching a weird movie or what are you doing and uh no i think this is all uh, happening outside i realized pretty quickly since uh you know the day the night before we were kind of advised that uh there was an expectation that there there'd be some attacks against buildings i had no idea that uh, it would be one of mine but uh Uh, There we were. So we had a crowd of about 20 people outside uh, playing uh, instruments, banging on the door, firing uh, signs into the lawn. Um, And, uh, you know, just just chattering away, making, yelling, screaming, uh, everything they could do and, and banging on the door violently. I mean, I'm not talking a knock on the door. I'm talking about a pound. On both the sides and the front door, so it was very intimidating uh, for my wife for sure. Rattling uh, for the neighbors. Thank uh, God for my brave neighbor across the street to uh, decided to capture all that on video, and uh, that's certainly been helpful for the uh, for the police to use. And um, and uh, I took some pictures, and you know I thought it, I thought it important that we. Uh, you know, identify the people that are doing these kinds of actions. And so uh, to the degree that uh, that that did that, uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. And, you know, it, it, it's really crossing a line, quite frankly. It and, is. And, uh, I'm not accepting of it, and uh, nor are the police, and nor is the uh, broader community. And I've heard from many in our community, uh, you know, indicating support, notwithstanding, you know, what side of the issue on, on uh, this whole hate, uh, you know, mongering, uh, uh, issue is uh, they're, uh, they're, they just don't believe that this is, uh, in any way, shape, or form, the right thing to do.
0: Well, I've known you for a long time. I've known you for decades. You're a very fair guy. Um, yeah. I've not always agreed with you, obviously, but uh, but you're yeah. a very fair person. And uh, when I read this, and they, they I, I'm going to, am going to quote. I'm going to say what the quote was. Uh, the, scre- the the screaming was that the mayor hates queers. Right. And and uh, I don't, for a minute, that believe that Fred Eisenberger hates anybody. Um, right. and, and and this is not something. If you have a dispute, if you have an issue, you do not take it to somebody's front door, put on a mask, and start pounding on the door and intimidating. This has this has to stop. Would you uh, are you considering asking police to lay charges if, once you identify who it is?
5: Well, I'm not. I'm not asking the police to do anything. I, I'm asking them to do their job. Uh, you know, and if they believe the charges are appropriate, then uh, they'll they'll do that. Apparently, they have. Uh, so they've arrested uh, one individual. That I'm aware of, I think that was announced yesterday, and uh, and they're uh, they're investigating others. So I'm not uh, I'm I'm not in charge of policing and operationally that. I'm not uh, I'm not asking the police to lay charges. I'm asking them to follow the law. And if the uh, the law allows that uh, the infractions have occurred here, then uh, then use your law and, and, and lay the appropriate charges. Yeah. You know this is uh, this is this is definitely crossing the line. You know I I, I mean you, you you end up having to defend yourself from accusations that uh, have never been and never will be true. I am not uh, anti-anything. In fact, I've been working on inclusivity and diversity and embracing immigration and ensuring that that there are safe spaces and places for everyone in our community, whether you... You love somebody different than I do, or whether you have a different skill, skin color, or whether you have a different belief or origin. As long as you're not out to hurt anybody, uh, we're 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 prepared to make sure that uh, Hamilton is for you and it's safe and it's conclusive and you have
0: opportunity. Yeah, I don't doubt. Uh, I, I don't I, doubt I, you for all, a second. I've always believed that, and uh, that will never change. And I, I like I said, I don't doubt you for a second. But confronting elected officials or even media at their homes is an increasing reality, and it has to stop. Mayor Eisenberg, thank you so much for the time. Good luck to you.
5: Roy, thank you. It's always good to talk to
0: you. Fred Eisenberger, the mayor of Hamilton, Ontario, said banging on his door intimidatingly at seven o'clock in the morning yesterday. And you do not take it to people's homes. Private residence. Break it down into two words, private and residence.